Um, did you announce that uh, March 22nd is? No, I'm not. Okay. Uh, no, I have not. So two weeks from today is the family Sunday, so there's no two services, and which means we won't be meeting. Uh, and then I'm gone on Palm Sunday and Memorial Day weekend, okay. the two weeks. That's so you can figure out something. And then having 60% or more of our class missing this morning is rather astounding. Um, wow. Uh, we have extra handouts. If you need more than one, we can provide that for you. Have we been sanitized? Um, well, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, let me deal with it. Yeah, yeah let you do it. You're the oh, medical no. professional. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> We turn in our scriptures, uh, continuing where we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As I put here, actually wrote here, uh, would you like to join me in putting our fork in theological electric socket and see if we end up getting buzzed this morning? This particular passage has been... Uh, somewhat controversial over the centuries uh, for very good reasons because primarily if you look at it it focuses on both prophecy and tongues within the church the topic in general is not necessarily the specificity of prophecy and tongues but the problem of chaos in worship. That's what we're dealing with here. That is the thrust of where Paul's uh, teaching has been almost coming to this uh, uh, conclusion or this uh, uh, final point. In chapter 5, in the church, there was open immorality. In chapter 6, there were lawsuits among church members. Chapter 8, there was the causing of new believers to stumble by, by their activity. Chapter 9, they were hindering the gospel. Chapter 10, they're dealing with idolatry in the church. Chapter 11, you go start getting into the church services itself and you'd had to deal with head covering and the misuse of the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12 is a, was a, a overview of the spiritual gifts where we spent almost four lessons on just that, that alone. Chapter 13 was Paul trying to say there needs to be love in all of this primarily. And then we get to chapter 14 where tongues and prophecy have run amok. Now before you get in any type of study like this <coughs> you have to define what you mean by tongues and what you mean by prophecy. Otherwise, you could have a conversation with someone and you both walk away thinking you both understood it, but you both had different understanding of it. So anytime you're in a theological dis discussion or Bible study like this, you have to define the terms. Now, way back when, when we were doing the spiritual gifts, I created this chart for us all. And so I'm going to refer to it because we kind of all agreed that this was a, uh, at least a modest definition. First, tongues. 
This is the spiritual gift to speak in a language unknown to the person speaking it so others can hear God's truth in their language for the benefit of others. Now notice I didn't say it had to be a uh, human language. I just said a language because we decided kind of, well, it's really unclear. Which, which, which could it be? Alongside of tongues, there has to be interpretation, which we will find out throughout chapter 14. And interpretation is taking that unknown language to the speaker and translating it into a message that others can understand. Prophecy is probably even more difficult to define because there's the difference between foretelling, predicting the future, and forthtelling a proclamation of some sort of truth. In fact, William Barclay, in his commentary, if you've ever read his books, he has his own translation of the New Testament. And in this, when he translates chapter 14, he does not use the word prophecy at all. He uses the word forthtelling, which makes for awkward um, verbiage, but he's trying to make a point. Uh, he, he, he was actually making a, a stand on what his definition of prophecy was in this context. Okay, well, it can mean both. So we came up with a definition to be gifted with a message of something that God reveals to the speaker that he wants delivered to his people. But not a new revelation to supplant scripture. And it can be a warning, an exhortation, or a revelation under the direction of the Holy Spirit. It's not preaching only. It can be. But that's not all of it. It, 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 it. it could be. Because that would make 1 Corinthians 14 really weird. If it was just a bunch of preachers in the room. I mean, that's what you call the Gospel Coalition annual conference. <laughs> Where all the preachers go in the room. Then you would have it. That would make sense. But there's something going on here because you, we have all run into people who have a gift of prophecy in that they have something that God has placed on their heart and they are able to express it to us in the form of an exhortation or a warning or even a revelation to, to your life. Now, we could go on and on about this. Um, but the bottom line is, these gifts were being misused. So one, uh, one guy I was listening to in his uh, study of this, he said, you know, there are certain inventions in our modern world that they are useful if used in its appropriate context. Like a laser pointer. Laser pointer is kind of a cool thing. If you're a teacher, you can just go and point at the board. You don't have to walk over with a long stick or anything like that. You can point it. Or it's a great thing if you want to play with your cat. I mean, it's just, it just has a great meaning with that. But you don't point it at an airplane. 
It's misused. It's dangerous. It can blind the person who's flying. The other thing I mentioned, which I thought, oh, this is really appropriate, is the air horn. <laughs> In certain contexts, like if it's a call for help, or there's a, you need to let a whole bunch of people know that it's time to begin, you can blow the air horn. But if you're next to the person at high school graduation, it's not a good thing. It's just, why are you doing that in my ear? <laughs> Nobody cares. Um, so you have certain things that are misused that are good if they're used appropriately. And that's what Paul is trying to say in this incredibly long passage, which I handed out to you. It's 40 verses. Now, obviously we can't break apart the entire text one by one uh, in the time we have. And the nature of this text is it kind of teaches itself, which is an advantage for us as we, we study it. By the way, I have the last two pages of your handout. I pulled out all of the major verses in the New Testament on tongues and put them all together. If you ever want to do a study on what tongues are in the New Testament, use this. Keep it. Put it, file it away, you know, fold it up and put it in one of your reference books or something. Because I actually set aside some time and all I did was read these one after the other to myself. And then I read them again. And then I read them again. And when you're done, you realize God has a lot to say about the gift of tongues in the New Testament. And while I grew up in, the, in a cessationist um, uh, congregation and uh, I have never experienced it myself, you kind of have to wonder why God would have so much to say about this for something that is of no use anymore. I, I just, I just kind of have to say, can we be that definitive and say, it doesn't happen. One of the um, audio uh, uh, Bible teachings that I listened to is a uh, church out in San Diego. And it's an it's a evangelical, conservative evangelical speaker. Uh, the, uh, the teacher has been very involved in the translation work for the NIV. He's a well-respected New Testament scholar. But he hands every one of his classes with a Q&A or a testimony. And at the end of his section on chapter 14, he asked some lady, Lily, to come and speak. So here we are in a conservative evangelical congregation, and this woman came up and testified of her life as a believer, speaking in tongues on a regular basis, and she still does. And then she turned to someone else in the room, and she said, now, my husband has passed away, and so has yours. And the two of them were on the opposite ends of this doctrine. But we still were friends. We still loved each other dearly. And I just want to say, we can't let that opinion split the church. It's, that's wrong. And I said, well, that was really interesting. Because the woman he was pointing at was the teacher's mom. And so it just 
the whole personality and the uh, the picture of variety of beliefs, yet one in Christ, was right there. And I just I sat back after five minutes, going, "That was really astounding." So anyway, that's my preamble, which I am want to do of late. So let's start looking at the text itself. Verse 1. Interesting that chapter 14, verse 1, first two words relate to the entire previous section. Pursue love and earnestly desire, which is the Greek word for zealous, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So everyone kind of stops and goes, well, are you saying that prophecy is the best of all the gifts? But I thought there wasn't a hierarchy of gifts. Well, there's not. Again, every time you come to a passage like this, you have to look at the context. The context is that in this congregation, tongues and prophecy were being misused. So he's trying to say that if there is a choice between tongues or prophecy, choose prophecy for the next 40 verses, here's why. He's not saying prophecy is better than uh, healing. He's not saying it's better than knowledge. He's not saying it's better than teaching. There is no better. It's just an is. Now notice, verse verse 1 Make sure I have it correct. Okay. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now look at verse 39. What's it say? So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. He starts the chapter and ends the chapter with the same phrase. That's significant. Anytime Paul is doing the donut, where you have the beginning and the end, and then you have all this stuff in the middle, the good jelly part, but the donut is pursue the gifts and prophecy. Oh yeah, and pursue the gifts and prophecy as he leads out. So he starts it and he ends it with that same phraseology. It's intentional. But verses 2 through 4, and I'm going to break down the first 20, uh, first 19 verses into three parts. Verses 2 through 4, speaking in tongues without interpretation does not edify the church. Verses 2 through 4, speaking in tongues without interpretation does not edify the church. It reads, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. That's pretty clear. Wouldn't you say? 
Because he's saying tongues are fine, but they are a... There's something that no one understands in the room. Only God understands it. It's a prayer language for those who um, are wondering about where that idea comes from. It comes from this. Whereas prophecy speaks to other people and is readily understood. Don't forget, and don't get the understanding, that Paul is anti-tongues. Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So if Paul was anti-tongues, what's he doing saying that he does it more than anybody else? No, he is a practitioner in the right context. Prophecy speaks to people for their upbuilding. In most translations, that is translated as edification. Why the ESV chose the word upbuilding, I do not know. That is a, it's an awkward word. It's what it means, but edification has the same weight, I believe. Edification, encouragement, and consolation. <coughs> consolation is a Greek word that means calm under pressure. In other words, it's creating peace. It's creating encouragement. It's creating the building up of the body. And if you remember in chapter 12, the spiritual gifts are there for the common good. Not for the individual's benefit. It can benefit the individual, yes, but that is not its, their purpose. The purpose is the building up of the church. You always have to hold that in mind. The other thing we have to keep in mind this entire passage is that not everyone has these gifts that are being discussed. Not everyone can speak in tongues. Not everyone is going to prophesy. That you, we, we tend to forget that this is only directed at a choice few. Not everybody. Those who have these gifts are creating chaos in the church. Alright, verse 5 to 15 Speaking in tongues does not benefit the hearer without an interpreter, but prophecy benefits everyone. I want to speak, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now that's a, uh, let's just say it's an exaggerative statement. He's not saying you all must. He said, I'd love it if you all did it. If you all were gifted that way, hallelujah. If you're all gifted the other way, hallelujah. But we all know that isn't the case. He doesn't, doesn't have to get that disclaimer. We, it's understood to the listener. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And a lot of people put a period there. It's a comma. Unless someone interprets. So in other words... Tongues without interpretation, no one knows what's going on. So prophecy, which everyone can hear, is going to be better understood. It's going to be more obvious to the, the listener. But again, he uses the phrase, so that the church may be upbuilded. 
or built up, edified. You'll notice that this edification concept is in verse 3, verse 5, verse 12, and verse 26. 3, 5, 12, and 26. Four times in this passage, Paul talks about the building up. The passage continues. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Does anybody here play the harp or the flute? Okay. If you did, you would know. You can take a flute. I could take a flute right now. I don't know how to play it. And I could blow into it. Eventually, I could get it to make a noise. I would figure it out. It would probably not be very beautiful. I learned how to play the trumpet when I was in junior high, right after I got my braces off. Before that, they wouldn't let me. He says, it'll bloody your lips up. Okay, because my oldest brother is a magnificent trumpet player, even to this day. I always wanted to do what he did in that regard. But let me tell you, the first times you're learning how to play the trumpet, it is not beautiful. Just kind of, the worst of all the instruments as a beginner is which instrument? Drums, the violin. The violin. The very first time that screech, scratch, screech, scratch, just chalk, fingernails on a chalkboard sound. Trumpet's kind of a blast, that or you know, and you're just not making anything. It's not beautiful, it's not understood. If it's not distinct, no one knows what's going on. And that's what he's trying to say here. He's trying to make a point. Then he says, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? Obviously, that's a referral to the military. Uh, <laughs> it's just really kind of funny, because I start thinking, oh, well, what are some of the bugle calls? Can you name them? Anybody think of one? Reveille. Reveille, okay. Taps, those are the two most famous. Charge. 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 So I looked it up, just, you know, because I was wont to do. There is first call, this is the, for the day, the army day. First call, reveille, assembly, mess call. And if needed, sick call and drill call. Then assembly. Then if needed, first sergeant's call or officer's call or recall. There's mail call. I didn't know there was a bugle blast for the mail, but there is. Then mess call for lunch. Drill call, assembly, recall, first call. Guard mount, assembly. Retreat, which had signified the end of the official day. To the color, which when they played to the color would be like playing the Star Spangled Banner. Everyone would stop because they're playing a call to the flag to the color, then mess call for dinner, then tattoo. I went, what's a tattoo bugle call? Well, that's when it's lights out and all talk will cease in 15 minutes. And then call to quarters. Those of you who are still out and you haven't responded to the tattoo, you gotta get there and then there's taps and it's the end of the day. Every day, this was their routine. 
which made me understand my dad was in the military and the army for four years. He would want, when there were mornings as a teenager when I didn't want to get out of bed, he would walk in the room, open the door, and begin, it's time to get up, it's time to get up, it's time to get up this morning, it's time to get up, it's time to get up, it's time to get up today. Leave me alone. Oh, anyway, he had this big smile on his face. Time to get up, time to get up. Anyway. In the battles, they didn't have walkie-talkies. They didn't have, they, sometimes they would use flags from the back, but when you're moving forward, you don't turn around while the bullets and arrows are flying. You've got to keep moving, and so it was a bugle call to tell you what to do. Retreat, charge, move forward, move this way, move that way. It was a signal to the group. But if the bugler began playing the mess call in the middle of battle, everyone would be going, oh, okay. <laughs> they would get confused because he's playing the wrong notes or the indistinct ones. They're going, well, what song is that? Oh, it's Louis Armstrong. Okay, so what's happening? And it's this, I think it was just a wonderful way for Paul to describe to the listeners they all knew what this meant. They all knew it. And if you also think that the thing about the bugle is there's no keys on it. It's not a trumpet. It's purely on the force of the lips and the, the, the pressure that you push in. Yeah. Was there any indication that the bugle was used in this country? Oh yeah, it definitely was. That's where it came from. Was it all with the, uh, the soldiers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same idea. Again, you would have the flags, you would have the runners who would bring messages, because the problem about a bugle call is the other side could hear it too. <laughs> so, charge! Oh, there's no sneak attack. They wouldn't do a sneak attack with a bugle call. Um, but yeah, the, but see, back then it didn't have the keys either. It was just a trumpet, a something you would blast, a horn of some sort. Yeah. So what is it, the, uh, it's the Scot, the, uh, the bagpipes with the Scottish, the, they would, you'd use that to lead there, that was their mm -hmm. instrument to lead. Yeah. Um, you would have, you mentioned the drums as a, a, one of the things mm -hmm. that there's certain drum cadence that would get people marching and moving in, in rhythm. All these things are embedded in this tiny little verse right here, where I, that's where I wanted to stop for a moment and go, all right, Paul, what are you saying? Well, my friends, in our church, you are sounding like a bugler who doesn't know how to play the instrument. You are just as, what did he talk about? Banging gong and clashing cymbal in, in chapter 13. He just already made an allusion to that. And if you remember, in chapter 13, when we were talking about it, there were the brass makers in Corinth, in the marketplace, it was total cacophony. When you would walk among the, the shops where everybody's banging and clanging, and it just made no sense. It was just noise. Verse nine, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? for you will be speaking into the air. 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. He goes on. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now some read that and go, so that means the tongue speaker should also have the gift of interpretation. Uh, You can read it that way, but that wouldn't necessarily fit the context as a separate gift. So I would say he should pray that there is an interpreter, that there's someone in the room who can interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Isn't that interesting? You talk, uh, the woman with the testimony, she said, well, I have this, this power, this sensation that comes upon me, and I do not know what I am saying. I have no idea. And I, but I just feel the solid presence of the Spirit. And she says, but I only do it now in the privacy of my home. I don't do it here at church. And if it does come upon me, I will pray fervently that there is someone in the room with the gift of interpretation. Otherwise, I need to be quiet. She's reading this text. There are a lot of folks who have a tongue prayer language. They may not talk about it much. um, And there's nothing that's prohibitive in our text about it. So we need to begin to be careful when we just say, oh, tongues are nothing and needs to go away. But notice the way Paul describes it. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, which means the mind doesn't know what it's saying. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my mind also. In other words, you pray... And when you pray in your normal language, you are thinking of the words that you are saying. Like we have a list that we go through as part of our prayer in, the more, in, in, in our gathering here. <coughs> but if you have intercession, you are thinking of that individual. You're using your mind. It isn't a mindless act. It's a mindful act. And then he says, I sing praise with my spirit but I sing with my mind also. This struck me, that's actually struck me last week, um, because I've been thinking about this text going forward. Um, When we sing our hymns in church, uh, are you reading the words? If you're not, you're not singing with your mind also. You're not praying with your mind also. You're just going along and wow, this is a slow song. Or, I don't know this one, so I'm not going to sing. Well, if you don't know the song and you're not going to sing, at least read the words. The words are there for a reason. 
And sometimes the words are a lot better than the music that goes along with it. And if you'll notice one thing that um, uh, our church does on occasion is they'll put a different tune to the hymn, which is frustrating for someone who reads music. Because I'm going, oh, I don't know this song, and I'm going, I can't sing along because the notes that are on the page are not the notes that are being played in the room. Oh, wait, I know that tune really well, so it's fine. Partly for me, because I sing parts, so I'm always looking for the bass line. And Guy likes to chit on the last verse of every hymn. He changes. You may know that. You know what disappears? The bass line. And it's a, it actually creates dissonance. If I try to sing the bass harmony, it's dissonance with what's being played. Uh, it's a fascinating arrangement how he does that every time. But the idea of hymns or praise being a mind, intentional in the mind, but also a verbal expression is really quite amazing. You know, I'm amazed at how I can be reading the words and singing the words and I'm still thinking of something else. Oh, yeah. I'm not there at all. And halfway through the second verse, I'm going, where have I been? And I, I haven't missed a word, but I haven't thought about anything. <laughs> it's how I think this is... It goes back to our childhood with music, with the popular music that we would... We could quote the lyrics. And if we took them away from the song, we'd go, what did I just say? Oh my goodness, that's horrible. I mean, you read some of the lyrics of the popular music that you grew up with today, you kind of go, no wonder our parents were a little upset with that kind of music. And this era, it's even, I mean, the, the filters are gone completely. Um, what was it one fellow said? It was where I was reading in my study here and it got to this passage. He says, isn't it interesting? Even some of our uh, choruses, now we can go into the difference between choruses and hymns and all that, that's fine. But he says, sometimes the choruses, you do you realize we're singing bad theology? Now when Pastor uh, George Dupere was here um, as the head of the music, he was very careful of the theology of the choruses that would be ever used. Mm -hmm. He actually had a list of 40 that were acceptable and everything else he rejected. Um, just they were either vapid or had no real substance to them or they were just simply repetitive in nature and didn't really engage the mind. So this fellow that was, I was writing about this, he goes, yeah, there's this one song that we all really like at our church, and when we get into it, we are jumping up and down in place. I mean, we are really, we're dancing to that music. And then we get to the third verse, and I'm going, why are we dancing? This says, praise be to God for the suffering that we are about to experience. Why are we so happy? We're not listening to the words that we're singing. This is a somber song, but we're into the beat. Interesting, huh? Anyway, it was a little side excursus in that, but I just thought that verse was so interesting that Paul is talking about worship, Paul is talking about prayer, Paul is talking about prophecy in the context of worship, and he says, if you're not engaging your mind as well as your tongue, 
you got a problem. We have a problem. So, verse 16 to 19. Speaking in tongues without an interpreter doesn't instruct the assembly, but prophecy does. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? (laughs) You want to go, is he making a joke here? What I found interesting is the fact that he's suggesting that they did say amen as a congregation. I mean, why is it that our pastor has to ask, do I hear an amen? And everyone goes, oh yeah, uh-huh. Because all amen means we agree. Doug White always does it. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, there's certain congregations that it's normal that people are talking back, they're giving feedback. So they were doing this in the early church. But he says if someone comes in from the outside of the church and doesn't know what's going on, they cannot say, I agree. They cannot say, I amen, because they don't know what's happening. For you may giving up your thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. As someone who works in the publishing business and the writing business, my ears perked up when I read that verse. I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The average person speaks about 150 words a minute. That means in 60 minutes, they've spoken about 9,000 words. So by the end of our time together, I will have spoken 10,000 words, hopefully in a tongue that you understand. (laughs) But that's how long. Good morning. How are you? It's five words. The contrast between good morning, how are you, And 10,000 words is enormous. So the brilliant Warren Wiersbe actually did a short study, which I found, where he said, where are the five-word statements of the Bible? You are a blessing. The Lord was with him. Have I not sent you? I am with you always. And how about this? For you, for your sin, Christ died. Here's the gospel in five words. For your sin, Christ died. Five words. Paul could say in five words that would instruct others. Or five words, I am with you always. And everyone would understand and they would be blessed. Boom, just like that. Or he could speak in tongues as he could do for an hour and no one would understand what he was saying and no one would be blessed isn't that interesting so he goes on brothers don't be children in your thinking be infants in evil but in your thinking be mature 
For in Isaiah 28, verses 11 to 12, it is written. Well, obviously he doesn't give you the verse reference, but that is the verse reference. It's a paraphrase. Verse 22 is a paraphrase of Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Then comes verse 22, which is considered one of the most difficult verses to either translate or understand in the New Testament because it seems to contradict itself even as it's being said. I am not going to try to unravel it. I have read so much on this and I'm still kind of going, I don't know how to, how to express it simply, but let's just read it and you can also hear why it's confusing. Tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will not they say you're out of your mind? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. So, is he saying that tongues are only for the unsaved? I don't understand that. Didn't he just say it's, uh, it's for God? It's speaking to God alone? Um, it's a confusing verse. Yeah, you have a thought? The first thing that comes to my mind is when you saw the day tongues were used the most was Pentecost. Yes. That it seemed like that was the way the Spirit used tongues to reach so many to bring them to Christ. Correct. So that follows with the beginning of that statement. Right. And yet, the context here is inside the church. The church. Yeah. So are there unbelievers in the church? And is it this only for them? Well, that doesn't make sense. Be, but at the same time, if an outsider comes in and hears tongues and doesn't know what's going on, they'll say, are you guys out of your minds? So, this is, again, it's a difficult passage because I'm not quite sure what Paul is trying to explain. And is he saying something prescriptive here as a rule? Or is he trying to unravel or try to further make his point that uninterpreted tongues in the congregation is chaos. And anyone who walks in and doesn't know what's going on is confused. But if they do come in and it's done appropriately, they will be blessed enormously. Because something that is a mystery will then be unveiled and then they will be convicted. Verse 24, they were called to account. The secrets of their heart are disclosed. They will fall on their face and they will worship God and declare, God is really among you. It, maybe that's what he's trying to say. Um, it's an extrapolation of that verse, but I tend to think that that kind of fits. That if there is tongues in the sanctuary, in the church service, and it is properly interpreted, it is a blessing. It's a major blessing. 
and can be very convicting to the person who is a foreigner or who doesn't believe it will help their unbelief. Maybe, maybe that's what he's saying. But if you would like to read the 27 commentaries and try to figure it out yourself, they're available to you. <laughs> so verse 26 and following has a subhead in the, uh, in the Bible, our Bibles, called orderly worship. Uh, you can basically say he's now going to lay down some directives to help uh, manage the chaos. Still allowing things to have freedom within it, but to manage the chaos. So R. Kent Hughes, in writing about this, he said, there are three things you have. Are anarchy, tyranny, and liberty. Anarchy is when you pursue freedom for the sake of freedom and creates chaos. Freedom for the sake of freedom is chaos. Tyranny is order for the sake of order. That's where a despot can come in. You know, that everything is rigid. And that's tyranny, but order for the sake of freedom is liberty. And liberty is one of the founding things of our nation, is that you have this idea that you have order, the rule of law, that creates some boundaries, but within those boundaries, okay, enjoy yourselves, you know, live free, but you have to follow the rule of law. If you dispense with the rule of law, you end up with chaos and disorder. We see that in our government, because I was trying to think, what is a wild example? I said, okay, imagine uh, there are no traffic lights and no stop signs and nothing at any intersection in all of Phoenix. And all two and a half million people decide they need to drive somewhere at once. Some of you may have visited uh, other countries where they may have stoplights, but nobody pays attention to them. I still remember a time when we were in the Philippines and it was a regular road, but there were five lanes and all five people on the front turned left. What? It was like this and it just, everybody's honking their horns, nobody's paying attention. And the, uh, the, one of the local guides said, just be careful if you ever want to cross the street. They do not pay attention to the stoplights. Okay. <laughs> or when I was in Australia in, uh, in November, everything is backwards because they drive on the wrong side of the road. So I go to step off a curb and I'm looking the wrong way. And this guy blared his horn, comes screeching, and I was like, oh, <laughs> hi. What are you doing? Oh, that's right, I'm in another country. They don't do that. Anyway, so that would be without signs. But what if there was a traffic policeman and an assistant ticket taker at every single intersection in the city? Whether there was anybody who would ever travel down that road or not, there was a traffic cop. Now you would feel like they're watching me all the time. Oh wait, we tried to do that with traffic cameras. 
that there was this idea of the sense of there's too much, there's too much control. It's not, but the rule of law is, let's start figuring these things out, create some sense of order, let's educate the people so that people stop at stoplights and they go, you know, they go at green lights and they slow down at yellow lights. Um, hmm. Well, that's optional uh, <laughs> in most cities. Verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So you've got to stop there. This is not a prescription for the order of a worship service. It's just things that can happen in a worship service. He just rattles them off. I mentioned my dad earlier, but mom and dad were very involved in their church. Uh, dad was the music director. Mom was the pianist. My dad was a banker by day, musician by night, volunteer for 50 years. But in Alaska, in the 60s, their worship service was televised live. In the 60s. That was not normal. That didn't happen. So everything had to happen within a certain time frame because the feed would cut off at exactly 60 minutes. So I grew up with To God Be the Glory was always the first song because that was kind of their intro to the thing and they, I remember times where everybody would be waiting and then the cameraman, there was one camera up on the balcony for everything um, and he would do the and then the light would go from red to green and then dad would start the to God be the glory but there was a a certain order of service and it was the same order you could fall asleep and know exactly what would happen in 18 minutes when you woke up. Because it was the same every week. It was part of the order to get a certain amount of time for the preacher. The preacher knew that there was a clock up on the back wall that if he didn't finish his sermon, he was going to get cut off in mid-sentence. And I found out later, I didn't know this. My brothers told me, but they actually did some of those services on Saturdays. In the 60s, they had Saturday service. Anyway, um, so you have various things come together. Let all things be done for building up. But if anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, at the most three, and each in turn. In other words, all three of them can't stand up and start babbling at the same time. By the way, I looked up on the internet. You can learn how to speak in tongues on the internet, by the way. Do you know that? There's YouTube videos. And there's the WikiHow website. Not the Wikipedia, but the WikiHow website. And you look it up and it actually has all the ways to you know, loosen your jaw. And all this. It doesn't sound like a spiritual gift when it's done that way. But anyway, let each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent and speak to himself and to God. In other words, you can still speak in tongues, just do it to yourself. Fascinating. Then, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. This is called prophet sharing. <laughs> I actually have it written in my notes. <laughs> prophet sharing. Um, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 
So prophecy just can't be laid, you know, laid out without any discernment. And this is again where everything must be tested. There's a lot of things in verses that talk about false prophets. There's a lot of things that talk about a, a, a bad thing is when bad prophecy comes into the church. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that, so that all may learn, all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject as prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And then comes the favorite verse of all women everywhere. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should, be kept, should keep silent in the church, for they're not permitted to speak and should be in submission, as the law says. If there's, any, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well. Oh, look at the time. We're done. <laughs> this particular verse, obviously, is full of controversy. And in our modern ears, sounds very... Um, anti-women. It's such a misunderstood verse. I, even this past week, I was reading a particular blog, and the guy was trying to be funny, and he says, you know, why does Paul write about marriage? The man wasn't even married, and he told all women to shut up. I went, whoa! You are completely misrepresenting the guy. Completely. And who says he was never married? We know at the time it is likely he was not, but there's no indication that he had not lost his wife. There's, I mean, we, we talked about that earlier. There's no statement that he was always unmarried. So let's just be careful there. And to say he tells all women to shut up, well, that's looking here at verse 34. Few things you have to remember. Number one, <clears throat> in this era, especially in the Jewish church, women were not allowed to participate. They couldn't even be in the same room as men. To this day, you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, there's a woman's court and there's a men's court, and they cannot cross. Today, that's still there. We have to remember, in the early church, women participated. They were part of the congregation. This is wildly un unfriendly to the culture at the time. It was revolutionary. In the Greek world, Sophocles said, silence confers grace upon a woman. Among rabbinic sayings, there are many, but some say as the teach is teaching the law to a woman might as one might as well teach her impiety. To teach the law to a woman is to cast pearls before swine. I'm quoting here, sorry. The Talmud lists among the plagues of the world as the talkative and the inquisitive widow and the virgin who wastes her time in prayers. It was forbidden to speak to a woman on the street. One must not ask a service from a woman or salute her. This is the context into which this verse comes out of. 
Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, Men and women are created as equal heirs to the promise of salvation. There is no male nor female, no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. Romans 6, 1-7 1-7 lists a, the women who had significant roles in the, women, in the role of the early church. Uh, I forgot to write down the, the passage. It's in Acts, I think it's 21, there, that it has daughters who will, be, who will prophesy in the church. So that was being, that was very specific. It didn't even say sons and daughters. It says you have daughters who will prophesy. Uh, then we have here, uh, in chapter 11, women are permitted to pray and prophesy under proper authority. Now granted, you have 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5, where God appoints men to serve in authority as elders in leading, teaching, and preaching. And 2 Timothy 2.12, that women were not to teach or exercise authority over men. This goes back and the, um, the law is talking about the creative order, the Adam, Eve. This hierarchy is all part of it. But we cannot say that if Paul is saying in chapter 11, verse 5, that women can speak and prophesy in church, that he would only three chapters later say they can't. Some would say that these two verses were added in later. Now, there are some manuscripts, very early Greek manuscripts, where verses 34 and 35 are at the end of the chapter. They become after verse 40. But there's only two or three of them. And what they figure is some monk figured he wanted to create continuity with the rest of the passage, so he just moved them around. But he didn't take them out. There is not a single New Testament manuscript that does not include these verses. It's there every time. So you can't say they were added in later. They were always there. Obviously, what you have is there is a specific situation in this congregation And so many scholars are trying to figure out what would be the scenario where Paul would make such a blatant declarative statement. Well, what if the man, the husband, speaks in tongues and the woman then interprets? Is she then in authority over the husband? to explain what he said, as wives do anyway. Um, I know he's talking, but this is what he really means. No, I'm kidding. Um, But there's this problem here of, were there clashes in the congregation between the husband and the wife with relation to this gift? And it's possible that he's trying to address this issue because he tried to address it back in chapter 11 where you had women speaking without proper authority. It's fascinating. You also have to remember another little thing. The culture of the time 
prophecy wasn't only related to the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. You had pagan prophets. Less than a day's journey away from Corinth is Delphi. You've heard of the Oracle of Delphi, or at least that phrase. That was around Delphi and its practices were around for about 800 years. It didn't stop until 400 AD. So one of the later emperors would go to the Oracle of Delphi to get some sort of message from the gods. Apollo spoke through the Oracle of Delphi. They say Delphi was actually discovered by a shepherd who was out tending his flock and came by a vent or a rent in the ground. And whatever gases that came up of the ground, he just suddenly went, woo, and started babbling. And they went, oh, he's been, and they, they built a temple around this area. Because that was obviously something from the gods. There are others would say, well, maybe the vent maybe had something, the gases may have had something to do with it, but that would mean it was always venting, which means anyone who came in into its uh, purview would be gassed. So they start looking into other practices. And by the way, it was always a woman. The oracle was always a woman, a priestess. And when she would go into her ecstatic speech, her speech was interpreted by the priests. So she would just go off in her unknown language and then the priest would say, well, this is what she's saying. Isn't it interesting that Paul would come in and say, in our church, because remember, people were pagans and they would bring their stuff from their pagan background into the congregation. So you have the priestess of Delphi, who sometimes would eat oleander, which is a poison, as we all know. If you go out and you know cut your oleanders, you're supposed to wash your hands or use gloves because don't put your fingers in your eyes because that stuff is dangerous. Well, ingested, it's a hallucinogenic, and it can kill you. And they even talk about some of the um, the litany of priestesses that after a certain number of years they passed away because they had eaten whatever herbs or what's too often and it uh, eventually killed them. So we can't forget that outside culture as a possible restriction that Paul is saying but in our church we can't have oracles of Delphi. We can't have this. This is cacophony, this is chaos. It's not right. Now I asked Pastor Jim um, many weeks ago, I said, so what if somebody stood up and spoke in tongues during the sanctuary service? What would, what would happen? And he said, well, if there was interpretation, yes, but it would certainly disrupt the service and the point of Corinthians is that there is order in the service. And we have to be careful about not letting things disrupt. 
So again, you can have the, there's movements of the spirit, there's also freedom within that, but at the same time, you have to be careful that you don't let this chaos come on that Paul is trying to address. He's not saying that all women for all time should never speak in church. That is not what he's saying. It looks like it. But he's addressing an issue. Now, you could disagree with me. We could have an interesting conversation. Um, and there's a lot of pastors who would, that, that keyed off of this and talked about other challenges in the modern-day church where why is it that there's more women who attend the evangelical church than men? Why is it that the men are more concerned about Wall Street and making money and women more concerned about their spiritual life? And so when the men have failure in their spiritual life, they turn to the woman for their... He goes, what's going on? And then the whole point was, men, start reading your Bible. Don't get messed up here. And that, that's a sermonic thing that they like to do. Yeah. But that's the female tendency to be of the more spiritual is from the beginning of time. I mean, even in Jesus' ministry itself, there were, yes, the men, he appointed, you know, his disciples and those that gathered around him. But the women that came along and served, there's, it's, I, I think that's, and that's part of the, um, your desire shall be over your husband. That even comes out in this. Your, mm -hmm. Because there is that um, more drawn, I think you see that in almost any, any religion really, is that there's that something within the woman, the way God created her in his image, that there's that more drawing. And um, I will say that, um, speaking as woman, um, that I'm not sure if this is, you know, through all the generations and centuries, but I have a feeling, because um, when I think of the book of Judges in different areas, once the women begin to speak in church, in an authoritative situation, the men diminish and disappear. Mm -hmm. And you see that in our, take it out of religious concept, you see that in our universities. How many women now are just taking over the campuses? Um, they're, 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 it, 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 the men just draw back because there's that issue of respect, the way God created the order. There's something that happens in any civilization when that teeter-totter gets totally imbalanced. Um, it could be a small part of that, I'm not saying it is, but there is that issue where it, all of a sudden the men's authority on the whole starts to... Yeah, it's, it's a bigger than a theological and sociological issue. There's something in the order of God's creation and we see this um, in certain denominations that chaos occurs and churches begin to die. But that's beyond the course of our of our okay, statement we'll talk here. About it at home. Yeah. We'll yeah. We'll be talking about that on the way home. Yes, I'm glad you said it. So So anyway. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only one it has reached? In other words, were the women saying to the church that if they had to be quiet, that everyone would miss out? 
And basically, Paul is writing, does God only speak through you? There must have been some arrogance going on. For him to make this statement, are you the only one that the word of God has has reached? If you only think they're a prophet or a spiritual, they should acknowledge the things I'm writing are a command of the Lord. If anyone doesn't recognize, he is not recognized. And notice his pronoun there is male. He's not attacking the woman anymore. He's speaking generically, but he could have used she. But he says he. So there's obviously arrogance. People are saying, well, I have the gift of tongues. I'm the special person. I need the front row pew. That's where I belong. And the other thing you have to remember is church happened not in a big building. It happened at home. Churches were held in homes. So if you are the mom or the wife of the household, and you have authority over the household, I mean, you're orchestrating. You sit over here, the food goes over there, you're doing all this traffic, you know, movement and everything else. That is a position of authority over the home. And what if that matriarch then starts to insert herself into the sanctuary? And Paul is saying, no, stop it. See, there's all these things happening in bits and pieces flying at this text that we don't want to dismiss it because it's here. But we also don't want to make it a poster that we put up on the wall. We have to be careful. And he ends with desire to prophesy. And don't forbid the speaking in tongues, but all things should be done in decency and in order. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. It's a long passage and a lot to cover. A lot of issues. I guess, you know, I I come away from this, Lord, and just say thank you for giving us and addressing topics and issues so that we can be aware of where humans get in the way of the Spirit. Where we suddenly feel like we know better And you've given us your word through the inspiration, through Paul, through the gospel writers, through Hebrews and Peter and John, all this incredible material for us in the New Testament to say, Lord, help us. Help us learn how to live our Christian life and keep you as our focus. In Jesus' name, amen.